everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to tell you the story, The Conference of the Birds. The Conference of the Birds, which is also known as the language or speech or parliament of the birds, is a 12th century Persian epic poem written by the Sufi Farid Uddin Attar. This poem tells the story of the birds' quest to find their true king, and the original, written by Farid, is interspersed with parables and short stories that amplify the meaning of this central tale. Muslims believe that birds have a language that they speak to each other, actually that all creatures have languages and communicate with each other, which is a belief I also hold, seems rather obvious. Anyway, Sufism is a mystical tradition within Islam, and the Sufis developed practical methods for working on the self with the aim of union with the soul of God, the one being who is in all things and is the source of all things, visible and invisible. Attar lived about 200 years before Rumi. His poetry and practice later inspired Rumi, who said, Attar is the soul itself. The ultimate truth or secret in every mystical tradition is the same. That knowledge of oneself at the deepest level is simultaneously knowledge of the world and God, of all things, of reality with a capital R. Many people who have had mystical experiences have shared this understanding. Antoine du Expiry, who's best known as author of The Little Prince, wrote, Behind all seen things lies something vaster. Everything is but a path, a portal, or a window opening on something other than itself. That something other than, the numinous, which somehow communicates the underlying wholeness, sacredness, and unity of this great mystery that supports us, (laughs) can be experienced in a variety of ways. And myths and stories can offer such portals or windows opening onto this something. It may be the images that the story evokes, the power of its metaphors, or the questions that it poses. So in that spirit, I want to tell you my version of the Conference of the Birds. I've revised and expanded an adaptation of this story by Peter Sis, whose illustrated version is a lovely distillation of the core story without the amplifying parables. So, I invite you to relax and listen 
and note the details in the story that call to you. They are clues for your own exploration into the place that these themes occupy in your life right now. The Conference of the Birds All of the birds of the world came together to discuss their need for a king. The parrot and the partridge, the falcon, quail, and nightingale were there. The peacock, pheasant, turtle dove, hummingbird, and pigeon came. So did the hawk, the goldfinch, the sparrow, the heron, and the hoopoe with her fan-like crest. The hoopoe had the ability to divine the presence of water. She helped King Solomon and was revered as holy by many people. The birds looked at each other and said, Every country in the world has a king, so why are we without one? We have many problems and confusion, and a king would bring order and organization to our lives. Some thought that kings were a source of the problems, but they began speculating about where to find a king and how to attract him to lead them. The hoopoe listened for a while, and then she stood up and said, The world is full of trouble, and I agree that we need a king. I have studied and traveled the world and uncovered a great secret. We have a king, a true king, who has the answers that we need. We should go and find him, and I know where to look. The birds were not convinced by the hoopoe's certainty or her claims. Some thought that any king who lived far away was unlikely to understand the local conditions. And how do we know this king exists? asked one of the birds. This question made its way through the crowd. There's proof, said the hoopoe. See, here is a drawing of one of his magic feathers. It fell to the earth in China in the middle of the night, and those who found it knew immediately that it was something very special. All souls carry an impression of this feather. Those who found it recorded the occurrence, and I have brought this drawing to share with you. Our king is called Sunmerg, the great bird, and he lives on Mount Calf in the mountain range that surrounds the earth. Our king is far away from us, and we are far from him. Let us go at once and find him. The birds got very excited at the prospect of having the great bird as their king. But then they started thinking about the journey. They were aware of Mount Calf and the mountain range. They knew this was going to be a very long and difficult quest. Many had their doubts and fears about the endeavor, and suddenly their present situation didn't seem quite so bad. I am a very passionate bird, said the nightingale. I sit in my beloved rose bush and sing all day of my love, and honestly, I could not leave my roses. You better go without me. Hmm, and what of the thorns, said the hoopoe. 
I already have a passionate quest, said the partridge. I sleep on stones and swallow gravel, searching for precious jewels. My sorrows are many, but I will either die or discover the precious gems that I seek. Hmm, said the hoopoe. What are jewels but colored stones, essentially pebbles? Then Duck said, I'm happy in water. All that lives depends on water, and it is my sole concern. So why should I leave it to cross dry earth? There's plenty of water where we're going, the hoopoe said. I also love water, said the heron. I am devoted to the sea and can't imagine leaving it, even though it is so salty that I cannot drink a drop of it. The character of your beloved sea changes by the moment, said the hoopoe. Do you think that it can return your loyalty? Hawk said, I already have a master and am well trained to do important work, so I'm not sure that I need a king, even if he is the great bird. Well, if you like following orders, said the hoopoe, then follow me and see if what you have is enough. Sparrow came forward, trembling in her feathers. I am small and frail, she said. I lack the strength for such an arduous journey. I don't want to begin something that I know I cannot finish, and what you propose is beyond the ability of a bird like me. Do you always quit before you begin? asked the hoopoe. The parrot said that he felt safe at home, where food and water were regularly provided for him in exchange for a few borrowed words. I am in a cage, he admitted, but my routine is secure. The peacock said that he had no need of adventure or self-improvement because he was already special enough. Look at all of my colors, he boasted, and spread his glorious tail. Come show your colors to the rest of the world, the hoopoe said. The hoopoe had an answer to every question and obstacle the birds proposed, but they were still hesitant. You understand more about this great bird than we do, they said. Maybe it would be easier for us to commit if we had a better sense of our relationship to the king. How do we know the great bird will agree to be our king? You want to know the outcome of the journey before you even take to the sky, said the hoopoe, and that is impossible. But I can tell you this. When the great bird first crossed the earth, he cast a thousand shadows, and these shadows became every type of bird. If you look into your heart, you will see his image. At last the birds decided to follow the hoopoe on the quest for the great bird. When they took flight, there were so many birds in the sky that they filled every corner of the world. The words of the hoopoe gave them a sense of the ancient mysteries and the nature of their king. Still, their fears were not completely put to rest. We are weak and feeble, they said to the hoopoe, 
concerned about food and water and rest and the length of the journey ahead. What will sustain us? Love loves difficult things, said the hoopoe, and she led them up above the clouds. The birds followed the hoopoe, but they continued to make excuses to her and pass them among themselves. I am too weak, some said, too full of faults, too ruled by my bodily desires. I am too vain, too greedy, addicted to pleasure and comfort, devoted to my mate, afraid of death, too cynical, too depressed. How much farther do we have to go? They asked the hoopoe. Will there be food there? What if the great bird is not there? What if he doesn't want to be our king? As they flew along, some of the birds started to feel strong and determined and firm in their ability to succeed. I don't know about the rest of you, they said, but I am very spiritual. I am very dedicated to personal growth and quite self-aware. I am familiar with lack, ambitious, just, and good, with a steady practice and some wisdom already. The hoopoe listened to these confident birds, too. Finally, she said, There is no substitute for the journey. No preparation or lack thereof is a guarantee of success or failure. Fly on. The birds flapped and fluttered and soared, casting huge shadows on the earth below. You said that the journey is long and arduous, they said to the hoopoe. Can you tell us anything else? We have seven valleys to cross before we reach Mount Calf and the great bird, she said. Every one of the valleys will pose its own challenges, and no one who has ever crossed them all has returned to the world. She told them about the seven valleys, and when some of the birds heard what was ahead, they died right there and fell from the sky. But many continued flying. The first valley was the valley of the quest. Here the seeker must learn that only the quest matters. All concerns, power, and obsessions, everything that you hold dear must be abandoned, left behind, and surrendered to emptiness. There are a hundred trials, and great efforts must be made. This can take years, but when you have crossed this valley, all dogma, belief, and unbelief will be gone. The birds reached this valley and settled in for the night. The second valley to be crossed was the valley of love. Here the seeker must abandon all reason and rationales and become one with the burning fire that is love, the love that lifts you up and pulls you down, the love that consumes all it engulfs. If you look at things with the ordinary eyes of reason, you will never understand the necessity of love. When darkness fell, some of the birds quietly slipped away rather than cross 
the Valley of Love. The third valley they reached was the Valley of Understanding. The birds were confused, lost, flying a pathless path over a distance that cannot be measured. Those who crossed discovered that true knowledge comes to those who can stay awake. There was no time now, no beginning or end, no clear direction, only flying. The fourth valley was the valley of independence and attachment. Here, curiosity and desire must fade away. There is no desire to possess or wish to discover. Nothing old or new has value. Good and bad have no meaning. A tiny fish is mightier than a whale. How can this be explained? It can't. The solid earth is shifting grains of sand. You can act or not. Do not even think of stopping here, birds, said the hoopoe. They came then to the fifth valley, the valley of unity. Everything is broken into pieces and then unified. Duality disappears. Although there seem to be many things, there is only one. One being and one fate. The sixth valley was the valley of astonishment and bewilderment. Here, the seeker can be overcome by sadness and despair. Do you exist or not? What is real? Is the pain real? The fullness or the emptiness of love? Are these real? When the birds flew over this valley, it disappeared below them. One of the birds said, We should go back. There is no such thing as back, said the hoopoe. There is only a circle. She reminded them of the phoenix, who sets herself on fire and rises, born again, from her own ashes. The seventh valley was the valley of deprivation and death. The essence of this valley is forgetfulness, and what is forgotten is your specific existence. Whoever becomes a drop in the immense ocean of being understands the paradox of existence and non-existence. There is nothing here, and everything is present. Nothing but the mystery, and who can describe it? Think of the moth drawn to the flame. The moth that comes close enough to see the light can tell others what he has seen. The moth that draws close enough to the candle to feel the heat can also return and tell her story. But the moth who is completely intoxicated with love, that completely embraces the flame and unites with it, understands and can tell no one what he has learned. 
There can be no description of all that the birds suffered on their quest through the seven valleys. Many abandoned the journey or fell along the way, beaten by hunger, thirst, exhaustion, or fear. Those that remained rejoiced when they reached the end of the seventh valley. Where is the king with all the answers, they said. We've crossed the seven valleys, so let us see him. What valleys, said the hoopoe. Those were illusions, my friends. Now our quest truly begins. When she said this, some birds lost all hope and died. Some kept flying. At some time, Mount Calf appeared in the distance. A small number, only 30 birds remained, and they flew on without trying to fly. What they glimpsed was so glorious that nothing else mattered, including their own existence and their quest. We're told it was radiant light. A door opened in the mountain, and a voice said, Birds, who are you, and why have you come? We have come to acknowledge the great bird as our king, they replied. We have come a long way and suffered, and many multitudes of us have fallen. Surely the great bird will greet us with kindness. You are nothing but a handful of earth, said the voice. Go back to wherever you came from. The birds were astonished to be dismissed in this way. But after a time they said, We want nothing other than to know our king. Even his insults are better than the life we once had. How can a moth save itself from the flame when its sole desire is to be one with that fire? Nothing else matters. We will not go. This was the final test. Now the curtains of existence parted, and they saw their king, the Senmerg, the great bird. And he was them. Thirty birds, united by their quest, see that they are the king, and the king is each of them, and all of them. I mentioned Rumi at the beginning of this program, and there's something about these birds all traveling together that brings to mind a Rumi poem that I've always liked. It's called Elephant in the Dark. Some Hindus have an elephant to show. No one here has ever seen an elephant. They bring it at night to a dark room. One by one, we go in the dark and come out saying how we experience the animal. One of us happens to touch the trunk. A water pipe kind of creature. Another, the ear. A very strong, always moving back and forth fan animal. Another touches the leg. I find it still, like a column on a temple. Another touches the curved back. A leathery throne. Another, the cleverest, feels the tusk. A rounded sword made of porcelain. He's proud of his description. 
Each of us touches one place and understands the whole in that way. The palm and the fingers feeling in the dark are how the senses explore the reality of the elephant. If each of us held a candle there, and if we went in together, we could see it. (laughs) Spiritual questing, doing it together. It rained here in the Mojave yesterday, and I was sitting at the window watching five coyotes in the valley below. They were circling a clump of yuccas and, and digging holes, and I have no idea what they were doing. But it was a really mesmerizing experience, and it brought to mind a mystical experience that I had. It wasn't an experience of, of seeing God's face. But you know, Jung once said that you could define a religious experience as any kind of experience that is characterized by the highest appreciation of whatever it is you're experiencing. And I had an experience like that once that involved coyotes. It was a really beautiful, sunny winter's day when I lived in Los Angeles. It was back in 1992, I think. And I was training for the LA Marathon. I'd been running for several hours up the steep dirt roads in the Santa Monica Mountains on the coast just north of the city. And I had been running for long enough that all of the pain was gone. I was in that expansive, peaceful place. And as I crossed a high ridge line, I felt my mind reach out to the sparkling blue water of the Pacific Ocean in the distance. I remember I smelled the dust and the strange sweetness of some unknown plant sage-like that grows up there in those hills. I remember the rhythm of my feet, my swinging arms, my heart, my lungs, everything was relaxed. And in that moment, I sensed movement on the periphery of my vision without slowing even the tiniest bit. I glanced towards the low embankment on my left And there were two large coyotes that came gliding over the hillside and ran alongside me about 20 feet away. We looked deeply into each other's eyes. And for one crystalline moment, there were just three animals running for the simple joy of running along the top of that mountain. And then the coyotes pulled ahead and they disappeared, you know, into the hills on business of their own. But at that moment, I knew beyond sense that I was exactly who I was meant to be, doing exactly what I should be doing in the place assigned to me for that moment, and that this was true of everything. It was truly a holy moment. It was a real gift. Many of us have these kinds of experiences, and the truth that they contain is worth treasuring and also sharing. Now, some of my other experiences have involved things that are a little bit more domestic or easier accessed than coyotes, perhaps, 
And uh, so I want to close out with a poem by Judith Minty called, Why Do You Keep Those Cats? That expresses the spirit of the mystery and the wildness in the ordinary. All winter, those cats of mine doze like old women in front of the fire, curl their fur around saucers of sunlight they have trapped on my rug. Sometimes they bury themselves in the wool of blankets to sniff dreams I left there. Awake, their eyes reflect deeper sleeps. Delicate tongues yawn, hide needles of teeth. I listen for their soft paws, for their purrs to rattle in slow circles near my bed. They want to capture warmth from my body. Why do you keep those cats? My neighbors ask. Why? It is for summer that I wait, for their claws to unsheathe, for their eyes to blaze orange in dark hallways. Soon they will tear at my door, howl to walk with lions along the fence. It is not for winter. It is instead for the flame of yellow moons. Then I run wild with them, hide in trees, sleep again in leaves. In August, I will sink my teeth, as they do, into the warm necks of mice. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you find something of value of Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new I create. You will also play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.